Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast from Taylor's Media. I'm your host, Andy Davis, as always, and this is episode 35. We're in September. How the hell did that happen? If you can hear a background hiss on this recording, it's not my equipment. That's all fine. It's actually the collective sigh of relief of parents as they drop their kids back at school. Anyway, we've got a couple of really interesting discussions this week, and they're both, in very different ways, about opportunity. First up, we're talking about how consumers and retailers can make money from reselling used or ex-display kitchens with Louise Grossman from The Used Kitchen Company. How the hell did she come up with that name? Then we've got the return of David Walcott, the Managing Director for UK and Europe of Fisher & Paykel. He's talking about the market, of course, but also his fascinating Saddle Up initiative to support people who have been made redundant because of the coronavirus. Genuinely inspiring and insightful stuff. While we're here, please remember that the best way to listen to this podcast is via a podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Simply search KBB Review, and you can see all the previous episodes, subscribe, and give us a nice review that I can put on t-shirts and give out as gifts. But first, Taylist Media shameless plug time, and as many of you will see in the September issue of KBB Review, that will hit your doormat in the next week or so, we have a new initiative called the KBB Review 100. We're gathering together 100 independent retailers that represent a cross-section of the sector that will become our sounding board, our industry barometer and the source of comment and opinion. If you're an independent KBB retailer and you want to be part of the KBB Review 100, then look out for it in the September KBB Review or on kbbreview.com. Okay, so demand for new kitchens is very high at the moment, as everyone keeps telling me. And, of course, most of the time when a new kitchen goes in, an old kitchen comes out. But as many of you know, these days that doesn't have to mean it going straight in the skip. It could turn into cash for the homeowner or, indeed, the retailer removing old displays. So let's find out more from Louise Grossman of the Used Kitchen Company. Hello, Louise. Hi there. How are you today? How is the weather where you are? Yeah, it's perked up a bit, actually. can definitely see a bit of blue out there. Which is very nice. I'm up here in the loft with my single light looking out on the world and the, the white clouds are passing by, so all is good. Let's start, as always, tell us a little bit about the Used Kitchen Company. The explanation is right there in the title, isn't it? But how do you describe exactly what it is that you do? We're an online platform for selling used and ex-display kitchens. We basically launched this concept about 15 years ago when we realised how many kitchens were ending up in landfill and how many showrooms were putting their kitchens in storage because they didn't know what to do with them when they got their new ones. And actually, 15 years ago, few people even knew they could recycle their old kitchens. And showrooms often didn't have time to sell the displays, so they ended up dismantling them and putting them in storage. And that's really where they stayed. Yes, and if you consider the intrinsic value of what that kitchen may or may be, that's thousands of pounds literally getting chucked in a skip. That is exactly what we thought. So... We started off by approaching showrooms and asking them what they did with their clients' old kitchens. And it transpired that they all ended up on the skip. So we said, well, what if we could sell them for you? And they all were really excited about this concept and actually then asked if we could sell their displays as well, which, of course, we could. And originally, I should think the majority of people selling their kitchens were doing it more for the money than for the sustainability side of things. But as things have gone on, Year on year, people are becoming more and more eco-conscious and keen to do their bit for the environment. So although, of course, the cash helps a lot too, people are definitely doing it for a more recycling aspect 
Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I suppose the guilt of throwing stuff away that is so clearly got nothing wrong with it other than you don't like, maybe not like the style, that does prey on people's minds more than it probably did 15 years ago. Absolutely, yes. We're definitely getting approached by people who actually are choosing to buy X display or use now because they want to do their bit for sustainability, not just to save money. There's a lot of demand at the moment, like I was saying. How is business for you? We've obviously got the advantage of always being on an online business. So, you know, we haven't had to close up shop or anything. And in fact, we did do a lot of sort of rescuing during lockdown initially when people were sort of left high and dry because their builders had to leave the sites. The showrooms had closed down. The manufacturers weren't manufacturing the kitchens and people literally had no kitchen at all. So we managed to have emergency kitchens that people were able to come and collect and literally either install themselves or get their brother-in-laws to install and sort themselves out during lockdown. And then ongoingly, I I just think that um, having spoken to a lot of the showrooms, business is looking very positive for everyone at the moment. What proportion of your business is homeowners and what proportion of your business is showrooms? It's about... 60, 65% showrooms, and the rest is um, used kitchens. Well, okay, so it's pretty reasonably even split between the two. Okay, so imagine i am got a big house with a big kitchen in it, right? See so if you can imagine that, because I haven't. How does it actually work for me? If I've got a kitchen, I want to get a new one put in. Well, so it's actually a very simple process. All you have to do is email us a photo of your kitchen, let us know how old it is, and the make and what appliances you want to include and then we can value it for you and then if you're happy with that valuation we'll get it listed on the website it goes out to all our buyers we've got about twenty thousand people registered with us at the moment and people either want to come and have a look at it or they might just buy it straight from the website and then it's the buyer's responsibility to dismantle and collect it so that's another sort of expense and aggro that is taken away from you so if I'm buying a kitchen from you, I've got to arrange to come and get it and someone to fit it in my house, obviously. Yes, and we have fitters. We have independent fitters we work with, so we can sort everything out for you if you want to. But often people have builders on site. They are developers or they're happy to do it themselves. So it's a real mix of buyers that we're dealing with, to be honest. Yes, because, of course, the, the amount of time it must take to dismantle a kitchen and chuck it in a skip compared to dismantling a kitchen very, very carefully to be able to put it in someone else's house or at least manipulate it into someone else's house, that must have to get factored into the project that is already in process. Yes, I mean, obviously, it's going to take a lot longer to dismantle a kitchen. I'd say, on the whole, the fitters normally get them out in a half a day. Okay, so imagine then I have a showroom and I'm, I want to get rid of a display. The process is exactly the same, is it? It's very similar. We've got photographers who will come and photograph the kitchens and measure up the, the kitchens for them to get listed. So all you have to do is give us a call, let us know you've got one, two, three, six displays, and we will arrange to come and photograph them, measure them, get them listed and, um, and sell them for you. It's interesting. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of kitchen retailers hang on to displays until they can sell them. Yeah, you know, they don't necessarily always put in the latest model or whatever it is until they can sell on the display. But what you're handing them here is a way of basically doing that straight away. And it's very interesting because we have a real mix of buyers. So some buyers literally want a kitchen tomorrow. They haven't really thought about it, and suddenly their new build is ready for their kitchen. 
and the others are actually haven't even got their planning permission yet. So often showrooms say, right, we don't really want to release the kitchen till our new kitchen comes in in eight weeks. And actually, if people have found their dream kitchen, they're really happy to wait for it. As a concept, it sounds so obvious. I'm surprised people hadn't done it for years and years and years. The mysterious bit that I know you're not going to give me the answer to here, but I'm going to ask you anyway, is you basically tell people what you think the kitchen is worth. How do you do that? How do you work that out? Well, the, the showrooms, I'd say, normally they're 50 to 70% off their retail value. So, you know, depending how desperate the showrooms are to get rid of them and how much they're happy to get out of it, or maybe how much they had to pay for it in the beginning, really depends on what we end up listing them with. But with the showrooms, we tend to liaise with them to create a price they're happy with. And with the used kitchens, it obviously depends on, on the make and the age and the condition, because often, you know, a 10-year kitchen can be in amazing condition or a two-year-old one has been overused and abused. So it really depends on kitchen to kitchen. But really, based on that, it's the, the make, the age, the appliances and the condition, which helps us to decide on the price that we're going to list it at. And how does the, the measuring and the fitting bit of it work? How, uh, do you rely on the, the homeowner to measure it all and that's what the buyer will, will base things on? We have photographers, so we can arrange to go in and photograph and measure the kitchens, but a lot of homeowners are really happy to do it themselves or they've got the original plans for the kitchen. Anyone's allowed to go and view a kitchen. So whether it's in someone's home or in a showroom, we always encourage people to go and view before they purchase. When consumers are buying these things, do they often have a designer working with them? Sometimes they do, but often it's amazing how people are able to work out how the kitchen's going to work for them. And often with the X displays, they're current, so people can buy additional units if they need them. You do it a lot by make and brand, don't you? And you can search by make and brand. What are the brands that make your mouth water? When you know you've got one of them on the books, you know it's going to go. It's quite interesting because there's quite a selection of kitchens that are very popular. Boffy kitchens go very quickly. Chalon, Mark Wilkinson, Smallbone, they all are very popular. We often have waiting lists for some of these kitchens where literally when they come in, we contact the people on our waiting list. You know, things like Plain English, Tom Howley, they're all very, very popular. The classic English look is yeah, always... Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it, yeah got a real widespread of brands on there as well haven't you so I mean, you've literally got everything from you know a howden's kitchen up to you know a clive christian kitchen or whatever um you know how popular are the kind of the lower end brands i don't mean lower you know it's a very hard way to put it but you know if you can buy a howden's kitchen relatively cheaply anyway how much cheaper are you could well it's still a lot you know howden's doesn't work, always work out so so cheap i mean our kitchen started about 1700 pounds you know so if you're They sort of attract people who are first-time buyers, people who are doing buy-to-lets, people who might be saving to do a bigger project in the next year but just want a kitchen to cover themselves for six months or something like that. What kind of saving are we talking about here? I mean, if you've got a small bone kitchen, say, what's the percentage difference between what you can buy it for from you and what it would cost new? If it's used, you might end up paying eight grand for a 50 grand kitchen. Wow. I mean, it's used, but it might... It could be anything from brand new and installed and just, you know, being put in to sell the house to being 10 years old. 10 years is more or less our ceiling unless it's a particularly, you know, sought after make. 
which brings us on nicely to the kind of provenance element of of, of how you operate here. Because you you back in the KBB show in March, remember March? Yeah, it, it seems it seems <laughs> so a very long time ago. Yeah, so much has happened since then. But back in March, you were at the KBB show talking about the kitchen passport. Yes with tracking the lifetime of the kitchen. So to talk us through it. How does that work and what's the principle? As a company, we're always looking to grow and obviously ideas to promote sustainability within the industry. And we created the passport actually in response to the government's resource and waste strategy, which said every product should have a product passport for its end of life. And actually knowing how many kitchens end up in landfill each year, we thought how perfect it would be to create a kitchen passport. So anyone can create a kitchen passport now, anyone who has a kitchen, and it will just help extend the cradle to grave life of their kitchen and reduce its carbon footprint. And so we've created a website called mykitchenpassport.com. You go on there and you create a passport and on it you give details on its make, the supplier, the installer, the worktops, materials, finish and absolutely anything you want to about your kitchen, including recycling advice and dismantling process. Once you've got that, it not only gives you a great one-stop place to have everything about your kitchen, but also when you come to move, you can hand it over to the person who buys your home. Or if you then decide to replace your kitchen, you can then recycle your kitchen far more easily by having all that information. What you're saying here is is that the kitchen is of material uh, intrinsic value to the value of the home. So if you've put in a thirty, forty thousand pound kitchen, which lots of people do in the, particularly down where I live in, in London here, that's an enormous amount of money that you could pass on to the next homeowner as part of the sales process. Or as you say, if you don't like it in ten years, you can take it out and you're full proof there, the pedigree of that kitchen is available to hand over to whoever wants it and therefore make it more sellable. Absolutely, yes. We often get calls from people saying, I've got a kitchen, we actually can't find a make. And I mean, the last people put it in, but we're not sure when they put it in. And we said, well, you know what, if you knew the make or the age, first of all, you get far more money for it and it becomes far more saleable. You know, someone looking to buy it, not necessarily going to want to want to buy it if they've got no idea of its history. It's like the logbook of a car, isn't it? It's effectively what it's it is. Exactly, you, you, yeah. You wouldn't dream of not having a logbook of a car if you were selling it. And actually, these things are worth a lot more than most cars are. Yes, it really is. You know, I think it's really important for showrooms, they're more and more wanting to show how they're doing their bit for sustainability. And going forward, I think this is just going to be a natural progression and automatically showrooms will just create a passport with every kitchen that they sell. Well, it doesn't do the showroom any harm either, does it? Because it means that whoever moves into that house next will immediately be able to see who's fitted that very nice kitchen for them. It's an immediate lead, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think it's a win-win. By creating passports for every kitchen they sell, they're already making great steps towards fostering like a circular economy to reduce waste and also to extend the lifespan of a kitchen, even if, you know, even if it goes on to a second or third home. I mean, it's a very clever idea. As most clever ideas are, it's incredibly simple too. So how much kind of uptake have you had of it so far? We've had such a positive response. We really, honestly, I'm sort of gobsmacked. Every kitchen that we sell now, we give them a passport with it. So many showrooms have already registered. So basically, a showroom can register on the website. They then can create as many passports as they want to. 
And um, and then we've had a lot of manufacturers really keen to get their retailers on board, which is a really positive sign. Well, that's great. And it is very positive. And it's a very positive move for the market, moving the market forward, which is especially good at times like this when people are looking for new things and new ideas. Any small advantage that they can have, they should jump on. But, Louise, we need to get to the most important question. We've talked about used kitchens, but I now need to talk about used music. Ah, uh, yeah. What, Louise, is your deserted kitchen island disc? Well, <laughs> it's a song that makes me smile, always, and has been sung so loudly by my family on so many car journeys. I just don't, I think it's just the only one that would ever come to mind, which is I'm a Believer by Smash Mouth. Oh, the Smash Mouth version, not the Monkees version. No. The Shrek version. Yes. Having the kids in the car, that's the one that they know. Of course. Well, you know what? It's a great song. I would probably choose the Monkees, but I'm a purist that way, although technically it's a Neil Diamond song. Fantastic choice, though. That's a proper sing-along wedding reception classic, that is. That's what that's what the deserted Kitchen Island disc is all about. Louise, thank you so much for your time. It's going to be really interesting to see how this progresses, and we'll talk again soon. Well, thank you for inviting me. Now, as you hopefully know, we've been running our Save Our Skills campaign to help those being made redundant in the KBB industry and someone else who has also been doing his bit to help those who have found themselves in that situation is the UK and Europe Managing Director of Fisher & Paykel, David Woolcott. Hello, David. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I'm all right, sir. Now, welcome back to the KBB Review podcast. You were way back on episode 13, which seems like a lifetime ago now. Yes, certainly does. I'm assuming you've just been sat in that chair for 20 episodes thinking, why doesn't Andy call me again? What's going on? <laughs> no, but I have I have listened to what, 70% of them, I think. It does keep me up to date with what's going on. And, and most importantly, here's the voices of the people in, in the industry at this unbelievable time. So it's um, it, thank you very much for the invitation um, to come back on and talk to you. Well, thank you very much for those very kind words. Personally, I, I think if I was on the receiving end of, of that many episodes of me just talking, I would be sick to death of this side of my voice, but there we go. <laughs> um, now, you've been doing some really interesting work helping people who've been made redundant, and we will come on to that in a minute, but I think it's worth checking in with how Fisher and Paykel are doing first. Now, yeah. if you want to go back to episode 13 and hear David talk a lot about how Fisher and Paykel is set up, then go back to episode 13. But let's start, David, if we can. Just just give me the 10-second background pitch on Fisher & Paykel for those that might not be familiar with the details. Fisher & Paykel are a New Zealand brand, New Zealand-based company with big market shares in Australia and New Zealand and growing very quickly in the UK, Europe and the US. And that's really where our global growth is, is focused in the UK, Europe and, and the US for the moment. And by and large, we've had an outstanding first six months. And that's really because... Our Australian business is running particularly well, but we've also had some really good outcomes in the UK in the current set of circumstances. And that's always the caveat is in the, in the business and in the environment, we've got a different rule book and it's really important for us to understand what's happening to the market in these times. And quite a bit of it is crystal ball stuff, but we are looking at the data and we are trying to understand more about how the luxury and premium consumer is, uh, is spending their time and how are they focused at the moment on their on their homes and the kitchens. We had our first conversation back in April. Now, you had a very positive outlook back in April, but we were right in the middle of the lockdown then. Yeah, If I went back to David in April and asked him how he thought the market would be by the time we hit August, September, do you think he would have been right? What I think happened was the dip 
was sharper than I expected from a, from a Fisher and Paykel perspective. But the acceleration out at the end of June, right through into July and onward, has been greater than we expected. So the timings uh, we didn't pick correctly, I think, as a trade and industry. And I also think that the acceleration out has caught a number of people in our industry a little bit flat-footed. And that's not to say that good, well-meaning decisions weren't made. It's just we've, we've been staggered by the way in which home improvement uh, and investment in people's gardens has soaked up all of that budget that people would have normally spent on a, a nice summer holiday, for example. Uh, our integrated products are in such high demand, we won't get back to normal stock levels until maybe September, October time. So we're having to ramp up manufacturing just to hold on to the, the demand that we're getting from our customers. And um, from what I'm hearing from our customers, Fisher & Paykel isn't alone. There's a real strong demand for premium luxury at the moment. The results from appliances online and John Lewis and everyone else shows that the requirement for more commodity type products is also uh, remains at a at a higher level. Is this a pent up demand spike that's going to trail off, or as somebody said to me the other day, this is now the new normal? This is what business is like now. My feeling is that July, um, and I know I'm, I'm looking backwards, but July was certainly a spike based on pent up demand from April, May, and June. Looking forward, I think we are going to have periods of relatively weak sales as we head into 2021. Topics like redundancy and consumer confidence are going to be problematic after the furlough period concludes in October. Certainly, as a country, we need to come together and embrace ourselves for that. I, I really don't see any other income, uh, any other outcome than there being many hundreds of thousands more people made redundant from all sectors. And that's going to have an impact on all of us. But whilst that happens, there will be a huge number of jobs and opportunities for all of us in very many uh, different sectors. And I know Tesco's and Appliances Online and many other businesses are hiring tens of thousands of people. But it's just a, it feels to me like a period of short, sharp change whilst globally we get a hang, uh, we get a handle on what this virus will really mean in the longer term. Um, but you're very brave at the moment to be confident in any forecasting that, that you're going to give. What I found interesting during this period is there are impacts that are directly related to a lockdown, obviously. But then there's impacts of it that are about accelerating trends that were already happening. So it's, you're exponentially accelerating them in many cases. So things that might have taken two years to come to fruition are coming into fruition in a matter of weeks. And so the escalation of digital, remote working, all these things that everyone talks about, they've come into place overnight. They would have come in eventually anyway, but they've had to be done and dealt with virtually overnight. The consumer trends, the way in which consumers buy is the obvious one, which is being reported in the general media and in the trade media, but I also think it's the focus of the consumer. If we are going to be spending much more of our time at home, then the focus will probably be on making that environment better. And to do that, people will be investing in their in their homes, making their workspaces, which might be a kitchen table or a small office, uh, better and as quiet as it can possibly be and so on. And, and I was talking to some colleagues in the automotive industry and you know, where you might have signed a lease for 12,000 miles a year. You know, I've got an 18,000 mile a year lease on my car, and I think now I'll be doing about 10,000 miles a year. 
eight to ten thousand looking at my my uh, appointments over the next sort of three to six months so that's going to change i mean you're you know you're the managing director for the uk and europe you must have spent most of your life on a plane uh, before yeah. all this how do you think that's going to change for you i think that's going to change radically i would be in new zealand three or four times a year once a quarter I, I would be in in new zealand and i really don't think that i'll be going well i won't go once in this 12-month period the last time I visited was in March, just before the lockdown. And I certainly won't go for the rest of this year and probably first or even second quarter next year. But the way in which we as a company have connected with one another, I truly believe I am a lot more productive than I've ever been, particularly with regard to New Zealand, because we're doing a lot more with technology. And as much as I want to press the flesh and, and be with, with the team in New Zealand as well as in the UK, I think we're just going to have to understand that that's probably not going to be as, as frequent as it was before the, um, the COVID-19 situation. Let's move on to Saddle Up. It's an initiative you've set up personally, as opposed to a Fisher and Paykel scheme, to help those who have been made redundant, but it's in a very one-to-one kind of way. But you tell the story of how it all came about. Yeah, it was a Thursday evening about six or seven weeks ago, and I was just making dinner and I was having a glass of wine and I was scrolling through my LinkedIn and I'm a I'm a big user. I find LinkedIn to be hugely beneficial. And I just noticed that redundancies were lighting up my feed. And I think I was just, you know, I was, I was impacted by that because I was made redundant before I joined Fisher & Paykel. And it was an unpleasant experience for me. I'd never been made redundant before. I'd had a career which had accelerated upwards. And I was really knocked off my perch, both professionally and, and mentally. And I was lucky that I had some really good support from our own industry in, in Australia and in Europe. And they kind of put me back together and reminded me of, of where my strengths were and what the future might look like for me in a really positive context. And I just really remember that. And now we're four years on from that experience for me. I felt that there are, what, in the UK, there'll be 750,000 families going through that at the moment. And yes, there's government support, and there is terrific industry support that you're getting involved with, Andrew, that Cook is getting involved with, that a whole host of other recruitment people are doing, are doing their utmost to support. But what I felt was... I've got an experience of making people redundant and having been made redundant myself. And I just invited people to call me, make an appointment, and we could talk for 20 minutes. And if I didn't know you, that's no problem at all. We can talk. And that sometimes not knowing the situation was, was really beneficial. So I went to bed that night and I woke up and the post had been viewed 127,000 times. It had 1,100 comments. I had had... 150 messages from all over the world, predominantly Australia and, and Europe and the UK. And I thought, hey, blimey, how am I going to manage this? Because I have a full-on day job. And this, for me, has just validated the need that when people have been made redundant, they really want to talk it through. And they want to talk it through with no strings attached. They might not be ready to talk to a recruiter. They might have a deep-seated belief that they want to share, or they might want to rant. And they might want to rant at somebody who 
might not understand what they're going through at the moment. And since then, I've taken just over 70 calls and I take them in the evenings when I have time and at the weekends. And for me, it's been one of the most uplifting experiences of my career because I feel that I have helped people to just mentally move on a little bit. And I've also helped them to understand that redundancies are raw, visceral, emotional experiences. And it's more than likely about the job and about the finances of that company than them personally. To move to that next point is incredibly important so that they can saddle up, so they can get back on their horse and and find a way through. And I also think it can be, often never seen this way, but it can be a gift. If I reflect on my experience, I feel I'm happier. I've met a company that's much more aligned to my set of values and I'm in a much happier place. And I wanted to remind people that the likes of JK Rowling, Oprah Winfrey, Steve Jobs, they've all been made redundant and they've actually gone on to do amazingly well. Now, they might be a complete exception, but when I started to engage with our industry, I found that there were tons of stories where redundancies had happened in the 80s, 90s or as a, you know, a decade ago and people are in a much better position than they ever thought they could be. And I think just sharing these tales and these stories will help people just get to that next level. And there are some fascinating mental models out there, Andrew, like people believe they've been made redundant, so I will definitely earn less next time. And there's just no data to support that. And I think people need to understand that they need to understand their own personal value. They need to understand what their vision is, what they want to do over the next five years and chase it and work with you, work with the industry to help them saddle up. So it's free. I'm not a recruiter. I'm funding it <laughs> as little as it's costing to do that, but I'm going to be hosting a website. And ultimately what I want to do is to connect peers from 40 industry sectors, of which KBB is just one. So I would like to find volunteers, leaders, managers who've been made redundant or made redundancies themselves to join me on this mission to connect with people who have been made redundant to give them, if nothing else, an ear uh, to talk to and a boost to their confidence and practically highlight where their skills are. It's a brilliant thing that you're doing. And this one-on-one element of it, I think, is incredibly important, particularly, as, as you rightly say, talking to someone who isn't in your family, isn't involved in the company you've just left, it's sometimes much easier to pour your side of the story out to it. And what's been interesting to me in, in the stuff that we've done in the Save Our Skills thing when I started it out, similar to you, I saw the LinkedIn feed light up with redundancies. I thought it was a very practically based thing, you know. It's about helping people find a job. And we have done that. But what's been really interesting is how many people have come back to me and said, look, it just made me feel like we hadn't been forgotten. It just made me feel like someone was on our side. And it became a very sort of emotionally based response to it, as opposed to a very practically, I need to get my CV sorted kind of response. People's jobs, their careers, vast majority of people show a degree of passion and interest and even love for what they do. And if not about what they do, then they have a very tight relationship with their colleagues. And we need to remember that when a redundancy happens, you sever that link. You practically sever that link to a group of people. And that 
is, is, is awful. It's as if you've been cast away from your village. I don't think we fully understand or appreciate the psychological impact of that. And Saddle Up is not a counselling or a psychological service. That's not my expertise is not that. But I think the best thing of communities and the best thing of talking things through is that humans have a way of resolving things by by talking them through and they come to their own conclusions. And that's what's been amazing. And no doubt that's actually what Save Our Skills has done as well. It's simply a really good platform. As I said, Saddle Up doesn't exist in a, vac- in a vacuum. It's not to feed on, you know, I won't pass the details to recruiters. No transaction whatsoever. And my vision is if we can do this across tens of thousands of professionals in the UK, what would the society impact be? Because the other thing I, I, I believe is that when people do return to the to a, to a job, and they will get other jobs, and when they do return, they bring scars and cynicism with them. And that has an economic impact across the UK or an engagement impact across the UK. Like any failed relationship, it's really important that you kind of get over that in a healthy way and understand it. I don't know where it's going, Andrew. I've got, in a week or two, I'll announce some more saddlers that I've got. One works very, in a very senior role at Vodafone. Uh, another really very senior role at Aldi, because uh, supermarkets, they're in fact going the opposite direction. So they're more about recruiting at the moment. But all of these companies have their bumps and they end up making redundancies. And, and, and what can industries do to provide that parachute is what I'm really interested in thinking about. Well, look, David, it's a wonderful thing that you're doing. And as I say, I th- what, what comes across very strongly here is that you're getting as much out of it as the people that you're helping, which is a very symbiotic thing. It is. And it's, um, yeah, it's almost self-indulgent. You know, I'm getting, I feel I'm getting that, I'm getting that little dopamine hit. And the messages I'm getting back, I've had some unbelievable, some beautiful messages. And I got, I got permission to share one on the Saddle Up LinkedIn page, which was from a lady who was really down and out and she was just over it. And we, we, had, we actually had a couple of good conversations. And she, she got a job at a much higher salary that was closer to home <laughs> in a job that represented her values. And that was just... That was just unbelievable to hear it. And, and she was of a character where she would have found that herself. Saddle Up wasn't there to do that. But just to hear you were part of that person's journey is a real conviction I have at Fisher & Paykel as well, you know, to be a really positive impact in people's work journeys, whatever that might be. Like I say, one of the things that's come across to me that I would not have thought of before is what a role confidence plays in what you do after something like this has happened to you is you are a master of your own destiny up to a point and feeling confident feeling hopeful and feeling good about yourself feeling that that people have your back is a big part of what makes you walk into a room at an interview or whatever it is and come across how you want to come across yeah you're exactly right a recruiter actually said to somebody go for this job because beggars can't be choosers oh nice yeah i was like yeah, that's, that's great. You're not a beggar. I try to diffuse all of these conversations and, and just you know, try and get the individual back, back forward facing. But I thought that was what a horrific thing to say. And the other story was where, you know, I, I stress going into any interview, believing that is this company good enough for me, not am I good enough for it? And 
I think if you go into an interview, not not with so much chest, you know, um, um, sort of self confidence, um, but I think you need to believe that you have a much much higher value than that redundancy has just exposed you to. Redundancy has told you that you're no longer good enough, or that's what you've read into it, which is inaccurate. But I believe that is the emotion. That was the emotion I went through. I'm no longer good enough. You know, I'm on my on the scrap heap. You know, I've done this. What did I do? And it was just an economic decision by the company. And I have no axe to grind now for that company. It was just, I felt that it was personal to me. But I think understanding that then you know you have more value to give is super important. So I, I absolutely agree, Andrew. Confidence is, is vital. We could talk about this all day, and I think it's such an interesting topic. We will come back to it and get updates on this as we go along. As we speak, we are heading towards the acknowledged cliff of the end of the furlough scheme. But hey, who knows? As you quite rightly say, predicting anything is so difficult right now. But for all we know, that might not be the case. But as we speak, a lot of people are anticipating that. And so who knows what might happen at that stage. But the fact that there are schemes like yours uh, and people like you willing to commit so much time to it is a wonderful, positive thing. But, David, you are a returning returning guest. And therefore, you do get a side B of the deserted Kitchen Island discs. Now, first time around... All the way back in episode 13, you chose a rather smoochy track, David, by James Morrison. So what's it going to be this time? It's going to be something equally calm. I've dug up my old CD player. Now, when I moved back to the UK, my parents kept my old CD player. And I, I've dusted it off and I've got out my old CDs and they sound unbelievable. I've listened to iPod for such a long time. A CD sounds amazing. And I've been listening to Damien Rice. And it's track number four on his album, called Cannonball. Oh, nice. That is a sort of very relaxing, uh, Neil Young-esque acoustic number. It is. I don't know whether I'd get up and dance to it at a wedding, David, if I'm honest. (laughs) You're at the chill-out end of the evening rather than the get-up-and-dance-I-will-survive period. If I'm ever invited back, I'll try to think of something a little bit more appealing. (laughs) Listen... Don't count your chickens, Dave. No, because, no. You know, no. no. The, the deserted kitchen island disc is a very sought-after thing, and you've got you've got two bites of that cherry. Yeah. Well, look, David, thank you so much for your time. Brilliantly positive approach to everything, and, and we will catch up again on the Saddle Up campaign at some point in the future to see how it's all going. But again, thank you so much for your efforts, uh, and we'll speak again soon. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank Brilliant. You. Cheers, David. That's it for episode 35. Massive thanks to Louise and to David. You can find links to the used kitchen company, Fisher and Paykel, and David Saddle Up in the episode description. Don't forget to find us on our podcast app. Simply search KBB Review, or one word, and subscribe, rate, and review. See you next time. Hold up. 